Welcome back to the KPL Podcast. I'm your host, Jagisha. This week on the podcast, I have author Lauren J.A. Bear, and we'll be discussing her novel, Medusa Sisters. I'm going to say that this is a must-read if you are a fan of Greek mythology, and if you enjoyed Madeline Miller's Circe or Pat Barker's The Silence of Girls. This is a retelling about Medusa and her sisters. It is beautifully written with stunning prose, and I think you will really enjoy it. But first, let's talk to Lauren Bear. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to just to give a little context. Could you tell us about Medusa and sort of the myth, the Greek myth about Medusa? Absolutely. I think that Medusa is a tricky one because we have a lot of preconceived notions of her and a lot of collective imagery that Mm -hmm. comes into our mind when we think of Medusa. And I think the first and foremost image is the head that has been removed from the body. Usually the face is screaming and there are dozens of green snakes. That's kind of the image that we all know. I mean, it's even on like the Versace logo, right? It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Medusa was a Gorgon. Um, She was one of three, the only mortal Gorgon. And when Perseus was sent on his hero's quest to return to the king of the island of Seraphos with the head of a Gorgon, the only option was to go for Medusa, Mm -hmm. you know, the the sole mortal Gorgon. And so he decapitates her. He brings back the head and becomes a hero. So she is literally the body that he makes his own name upon. Mm-hmm. So that's Medusa. Yeah. So now tell us about the novel. So what is your book about? Yeah, so this is a Medusa story, but it's not. Mm-hmm. This is the Medusa story, but it centers upon the other two Gorgons because I had this question, who are they? There are these other two Gorgons. I was a, you know, I was an English major. I was a English teacher for many years and taught Greek mythology, but I had never even mm-hmm. read their names before. So it kind of became this labor of love for me was to find out more about who the other two sisters were. The fact is there isn't much about them. Mm-hmm. There were three, two of them were immortal. We have their names, Steno and Uriley. And from there I was able to have a lot of fun creating a narrative for them that would be more empowering, that would explain their relationship with their sister, their, the, the narrative that brought them into this curse of becoming a Gorgon, what happened to them when Perseus arrived on their Island and also afterwards. So it's, it's the Medusa myth, you know, multiplied. Mm -hmm. So what drew you to this particular myth and, and the Gorgons? I was on maternity leave, actually, for my daughter. It was Mm -hmm. 2017, totally sleep deprived, as people are on maternity leave, and up very late one night feeding her. And I, it must have been percolating a little bit in my head just from my teaching moments of teaching Greek mythology, but I had that question, who are the other Gorgons? And I pull out my phone because that's what we do when we have these late night questions and Googled Gorgon, which brought me to Wikipedia. I'm not even embarrassed to admit it. 
And there was a quote from Jane Ellen Harrison. She was a 19th century classical scholar. And she says that the other Gorgons don't matter. The only real Gorgon is Medusa. Her sisters are just appendages. And it's 2017 and I'm holding my daughter Mm -hmm. and I'm a little postpartum, I'll be honest, but but reading that, that these women were delegated as, as appendages just felt really wrong and really unsettling. And it was almost like a gut punch for me. I, I really became obsessed with this idea that no woman is an appendage. And I wanted to use my own knowledge and imagination to bring them into their own story. Yeah, I mean, they're, yeah, I, this is the first time I had heard about the other two Gorgons um, and I don't think I even knew their names. I mean, I, I actually, to be honest, I don't think I, I knew that Medusa had sisters <laughs> to to begin with. Like it was, there's just nothing really out there. There isn't. And, you know, I chatted with um, a friend over at WGBH radio in Boston. And she told me that when she was in third grade, they did Greek mythology plays, you know, in their classroom mm-hmm. and she played Medusa's sister and she had no lines. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how perfectly appropriate for um, kind of the Gorgon legacy. So how did you go about doing the research? Because there isn't much out there. Um, did, were you able to find primary documents at all? The, the great thing about living in the modern world is that all of the, you know, classical Greek and Roman scholars materials are online. They are so available to all of us who are willing to put in the time and read them. I read I had you know my search my research list of words every keyword I could think of from the Medusa story to try and find Steno and Uriley in, in the mythological canon in the record I found little glimpses of them um little moments I kind of saw how their um personality or image evolved you know who put who gave them snakes who gave them wings who gave them claws? You know, I did kind of see how their physical description changed over time. Mm-hmm. And then I don't want to give spoilers, but there was one record of Uriley I found that was really startling mm-hmm. to me um, because of how it might have played into Medusa's thing. So that's something that's a major part of the plot of the book was mm-hmm. this record I found of Uriley later in life. So you get the little pieces you can find, right? And it's almost like, you know, this scene in like the FBI movie where you have all of the information out mm-hmm. on, the, on the wall and you have the thread and you're trying to connect it. That's basically what I was doing. And there were so many gaps. I just decided I was going to have to have my own spin on this story. Mm-hmm. And if, if you look at the, the mythological record, the Perseus myth is really early in what we think of as as the Greek stories. Mm -hmm. This is an ancestor of Hercules. So way, 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 way before, you know, the golden age of Athens or the Parthenon and Pericles and all these people that would change, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of what Athens became. So yeah, these are earlier, earlier stories that got to be included in the Medusa myth for me, my, my interpretation of it. Well, could you tell us a little bit more about the two sisters to, uh, of Steno and Uriel? The f- one of the first things that I had to do for myself as a writer when I chose to really dedicate myself to this story was 
I had to separate them from that image I mentioned of Medusa. Mm-hmm. I had to give them a distinct look. And so I started to play around with this idea of different snakes. I researched a lot of different types of snakes and their colors and their um, their their size. And I knew that one of them was going to have these kind of coral snakes. One was going to have gold snakes. It wasn't going to be dozens of green snakes like their sister. And then from there, their personality started to evolve for me. So that was kind of the first step is was seeing them and seeing them differently. And then I also knew the story was going to be told in alternating voices. Mm-hmm. But I want to give each of the um, each of the sisters a first person voice. Steno is the older sister. I gave her the first person voice, maybe because I'm the older sister. So there was just that commonality there. But also she's the more accessible sister. Mm-hmm. Uriley is not. She's more closed off. Access is a privilege, right? And I feel like this character doesn't necessarily want people to come too close. She's a little prickly. So it felt organic to give her a third person narration Mm -hmm. and so then yeah their personalities evolved from there now two of the themes in your book are sisterhood and feminism so would you just talk a little bit more about the themes absolutely I actually don't have a sister but I have lifelong female friendships Mm -hmm. that are extremely sacred to me and I think that these are bonds that have gotten me through the toughest times of my life. I'm also, I think to be a writer, you have to be an observer mm-hmm. um, and you have to take the time to watch. And I love watching the dynamics of siblings, but sisters in general, I think they're fascinating. Um, so a lot of the sisters that I know in my life or the sister-like relationships that I have are definitely featured in this book. I also think that, you know, we have this hunger for counter narrative, especially right now, not just in, not just in story, but in history as well. Mm-hmm. We, whatever that is, is most closely revealed when every perspective is taken into account. Right. And it, it can be a subversive act. I think when we retell a story, right, we're kind of undermining uh the, the authority or the control of the storyteller, which is typically, you know, the white male voice. And it definitely is for women in antiquity. These are women who historically and mythologically, you know, their their lives were organized and controlled by men. And then the record of those lives was similarly controlled. So they really kind of disappear mm-hmm. um, in the word and what we have left we really have to use our own compassion and empathy to reimagine what it must have actually been like um for these people so it's i mean i love these stories across mythologies across histories you know i love a good reimagination or retelling of a of an old tale and i think medusa's story with the toxicity, the the violence, the the pain in her tale, mm-hmm. it really deserves a reexamination. 
I'd have to agree with that. Um, I feel like, and then this is a, across all cultures, but that women are just not represented and, you know, they're, they're Gorgons or they're witches. And so, yeah, it would, it's nice to have this retelling. Um, Greek too, it's there. It, it's, there's such stock type characters, you know, mm-hmm. there's like the, the raging monster, you know, there's the like femme, sexy femme fatale, like Medea, for example, or there's just the like patient wife, like Penelope, mm-hmm. right? Just sitting there at her loom for 20 years. And it's so static and it's so inauthentic to what not just real women, but real humans experience. And I, I also hate how so many of these female characters are just, um, objects are catalysts for men on their hero's journeys you know mm-hmm. so I think I I think I hope collectively we're past that we're ready for some real mm-hmm. you know real perspective oh definitely um I'm starting to see more of it you know as I talk to different authors um I know there was um the czar and the witch which was uh, a retelling of Baba Yaga which was really a great novel yes I read that I loved it and then my friend um Genevieve Gordachek she does some great work with Norse mythology mm-hmm. and this is not you know a canon that I'm very familiar with mm-hmm. at all um and I've learned so much from reading her books. So do you have a favorite uh, particular mythology that you prefer? So it doesn't have to be Greek necessarily. It's definitely the one I'm most comfortable with mm-hmm. uh, because it was the most probably a part of like my traditional, the traditional, um, you know, U.S. public school canon. And then as an English major as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm so fascinated by the work, like who, who are some great examples right now? I mean, the way like Saba Tahir has taken the jinn and this kind of mythology and made it so cool and YA and accessible and fascinating and vibrant. And there are, especially women doing some really remarkable work in reclaiming mm-hmm old narratives and I am learning so much I can't get enough of these stories Mm -hmm. yeah you know one that I would really love to see retold is uh the story of Psyche and Eros and that I think would be very interesting especially told from Psyche's perspective yeah I always liked that story too that Mm -hmm. was a great one when Mm -hmm. I was younger um Atlanta was my favorite because Mm -hmm. she was like the female um, hero and there were so few of them um, but then I think Jennifer Saint just did her story so I have to I have to read that one as well but yeah I mean there's there's a a boom of these stories and I don't think it's because people are trying to write on trend I think it's because people feel like a deep ancestral obligation to change mm-hmm. the record yeah yeah I agree so tell us about your writing process. How do you, uh, how did you go about approaching this story? I quit teaching for one year. That was my plan. I was a middle school humanities teacher at mm-hmm. this time. And my husband and I talked, I'm going to take one year off of teaching and I'm going to write this book. Um, I immediately got pregnant with my third and last child. 
and then COVID happened. Mm -hmm. So my other two who are in preschool came home. So um, I wrote this book with, you know, my two preschoolers and pregnant and then the new baby almost entirely by hand Mm -hmm. because I didn't want my kids to just be staring at me, staring at a screen. And it was more portable for me to just bring my, my notepad around with me. Mm -hmm. And then at night when they were asleep, I would type up what I had written for the day. This has actually become my go-to writing method Mm -hmm. because in a way, I think writing longhand forces the pause and I'm a big believer in the pause. Mm-hmm. You, you slow down um, and maybe think more carefully and articulately about what you want to say. So that's great. And then the process of typing it all up afterwards almost forces the first um, revision and editing. Mm-hmm. So now I'm working on my second book. It's actually due very soon. And I've, I've been using the same method of handwriting by day, typing by night. Very nice. So what's the second book about? Is it also uh, another retelling? It is, but I needed a, a little bit of a break from ancient Greece. So I kind of skipped over the sea to ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. It's a really fascinating pantheon because it's such a, a hybrid mixing pot of the traditional, you know, Latin peoples that were there the Greek influence that came in. um, It's just, it's a mix, right? Of different gods and goddesses and festivals and rituals. I'm writing a book called Mother of Rome. And it's the story of Rhea Silvia, who was the mother of Romulus and Remus. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. We'd go on to, to start the city. So it's Rome, but it's not the Rome we traditionally think of. We're not there yet. This is the very, very beginning of all of that. Oh, I think that sounds fascinating. I've always wanted to know more about her. And I, cause I hear a lot about the twins, but you don't get as much about her. Exactly. Exactly. And it's another situation where, you know, a woman is remembered or a mythological woman is remembered more for her relationships to men than for who she was as a person. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I've had a lot of fun and it's different because this is one character so I really get to focus on on her um, and her voice and her experience. But I think people will, will, will really like her too. So what do you hope readers take away from, you, from your book? Challenge everything you've been told. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's the best way to live is to ask questions. That's what I want for my kids. That's what I wanted for my students too. <clears throat> excuse me, is just ask good questions. I think always it's compassion as well. Mm-hmm. I think um, we love villains, right? The The formation, the conception of evil is so fascinating to all of us. But I think when you write about a villain, you you invite and you invoke catharsis and compassion. You know, I was talking about this with my five-year-old and I asked her, like, why do you think mommy writes about villains or other people write about villains? And she's like, well, I think it's kind of like if somebody robbed your house, but then you found out why they needed to rob your house, you would feel differently about it. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, I mean, it would still be awful that someone robbed your house, but that's exactly the point. Once you know the why, it changes what you think you know. Um, 
And so, yeah, I would, I would hope that people would just apply that lesson to everything and, and to give each other grace. Oh, absolutely. And it adds, you know, it brings in the humanity to the villains. So you get to see that other perspective. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of, we were talking about retellings and I think a formative retelling for me was Grendel, Mm -hmm. you know, retelling that the Beowulf saga, but as the monster also, it's just done in such a smart literary way. Um, But I thought, I remember reading that and thinking it was just kind of groundbreaking. Definitely. So last question is uh, something we ask all our authors is what are you reading or what do you recommend we read? Oh, such a good question. You know, I took a um, writing workshop with Marie Helene Bertino this summer. Mm -hmm. She writes brilliant speculative fiction. So I just picked up a copy of Parakeet, which I'm going to read. And then I know she has another one, Beautyland, that's coming out next year. I'm reading The Weaver and the Witch Queen, which queen mm-hmm. right now, Genevieve Gordonchuk. Yep. I'm also so excited for He Who Drowned the World by Shelley Parker Chan mm-hmm. because I thought the the first book in this duology was one of the most groundbreaking fantasies I've read in a while. I read Yellow Face um, by R.F. Kuang. That was really snarky and delicious. Mm-hmm. So much fun. I mean, the problem with with talking about books and writing books and associating with people who also love books is that your TBR list is <laughs> it's never ending. It's the never ending story. Yes. Yes. And yeah, especially as a librarian and someone who does podcasts and, and reviews and stuff, it's constant. Yep. <laughs> How do you ever keep up? Oh, I, I don't. I'm drowning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a David Bowie quote, and I'm going to misquote it here, but he talks about how one of like the melancholies of his life is knowing that he'll never be able to read all the books he wants to read in one lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I feel that. I feel that. There's so much I still want to learn. There's so much I still want to experience. And books have always been that for me. And I hope they are for, you know, more generations to come. Yes, definitely. You know, and it's kind of funny because I'm sorry. And book bands. Yes, yes. <laughs> this kind of reminds me of something you said in the in the novel about uh, mortality and sort of not have, you know, reduces mortality and, and time being so finite and having to have a purpose and focus. And so, yes, books, unfortunately, <laughs> you don't get to read them all. Well, and yeah, you're right. Um, in in the story, I had to try and imagine what a dynamic would be like between three sisters who are, as what we would understand as triplets, right? All born at the exact same time. And one of them is going to die. And what that would be like to grow up together, to live together, to share this life, always knowing that one of you is going to die. It's such an imbalance. And, you know, one of the sisters, obviously it, molds her personality into being this overprotector mm-hmm. and the other sister becomes very, very bitter about it and very sick of it mm-hmm. yeah yeah that was um that's a probably a core part of how the story progresses mm-hmm. well thank you so much for your time and uh this is such a great book and I loved reading it and just getting a whole new perspective that I hadn't gotten before so thank you Thank you. I really appreciate your kind words. And it was so fun to chat with you. And 
all, all the book lovers out there. That's our show this week. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week when we talk to author Amy Brady about her book, Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. You will learn so much about ice that you did not know. So join us again next week.